about worship. So let us uh, go before the Lord in prayer. Father, again, we do come before you this day. This is your day, the day that you've made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. May you use this time to wash over us and to bring forth the power of your word. Get me out of the way to bring your message and to open our hearts to hear what you would have us to hear. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Sad as it may seem, many come to church today to see what they can get or go to a place where they think they can so-called get their blessing. Many go for all the bells and the whistles and programs and self-help focus groups. And one day I was passing by this church and I saw a sign that says, Celebrate Recovery. Didn't quite know exactly what that meant, but, you know, I'm sure that there's some good to that, but that is not the main purpose of church. And it's more of what I can get out of church. That's how many approach coming to church. Frankly, if you go to church for what you can get out of the music, or get your blessing, or even for what you can get out of the message, you have come to church for the wrong reasons. Don't get me wrong, the music and the sermon are very important. <laughs> so, to leading one to worship, but they are not what is considered worship in and of it itself. And just as a aside, let me get this out of my system, uh, the ultimate time of worship is the preaching of God's word. It is not so much when we say, you know what, uh, we heard th th they have worship. And you many times referring to the music, the singing. And let me say this, that some of the music that you hear, this mamby-pamby music that repeats a syrupy chorus over and over and over and over, with no depth at all, is not worship in any sense of the word. And that's why I like, and we so enjoy hymns, and I'm so thankful that Salem sings so many hymns because there's such richness in the theology of those hymns, the depth of the richness there. Well, I know it may surprise you, but the primary reason we come to church is to worship God, and that is not by what we can get, but rather by what we can give. In other words, we come to church to offer something to God and not simply to receive from him. I like what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 12, 1, where he says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to whom? To God, which is your spiritual service of worship. At the end of Acts 20 and verse 35, Luke says, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So worship is giving, giving, not getting. 
So question, do you sincerely worship when you come to church? Is worship what is on your mind? Have you properly prepared your heart for worship? When you are putting your clothes on or while you're in the car or on the way to church, is your heart eager to worship God? So the question is, are you really coming to church to worship God or for some other reason? So in this brief time, we want to look at worship and want to examine if you are tr truly worshiping God. And I pray that this study will help us to worship in the proper way. So we'll be looking at several passages, and one of the key passages on worship would be the passage I just read to the children from John 4, verses 20 through 24. So let's start with the basic premise and define what worship is. Our English word means worth, W-O-R-T-H, ship, worth, ship. This speaks of worthiness of an individual to receive special honor in accordance with that worth. This term is used of divine honors that were given to a deity, whether to the small g gods of a nation. In Exodus 20, verse 5, or to the one true and living God who reveals himself in scripture and in his son, Exodus 24.1. And one theological dictionary says, <clears throat> um, and one commentator mentions worship in this way, it is to give homage, honor, reverence, respect, adoration, praise, or glory to a superior being. So the word worship in and of itself is not a holy word. It simply gives honor to a superior being. I remember when we first learned this word when I was in seminary. And it, the word is proskuneo. I know it's a difficult sounding word. Proskuneo. And I was so overtaken by this word when speaking of a God, it means to kiss toward, to kiss the hand, to bow down, to prostrate oneself. In worship, one prostrates himself before a superior being with a sense of respect, homage, or awe, honor, and reverence. So when speaking of God, we bow before him and prostrate, if you will, ourselves before him in respect and honor paying him the glory which is due unto his holy name. So in essence, worship is giving honor and respect to whom? To God. This is the reason we as believers come together on the Lord's Day. We don't come together to give respect to the musicians or to the preacher or to anyone else. We come to give honor to God and to God alone, and that is the true and living God. The music and the sermon are there to aid in our hearts to worship him. So when we come together to worship the Lord, our focus should be on what we can give to him and not what we can get. Worship is an all-consuming desire of giving to God. It involves giving of ourselves, our possessions, and especially our heart attitudes. One illustration of this is found in Exodus 30, verses 34 to 38. This was a very symbolic form of worship. The point here was that the sweet-smelling incense was to be used only in the tabernacle because it was holy. 
is to be holy. The fragrance was designed for God and God only. When the incense rose to God's nostrils, it was only for him. This is a picture of worship. It is to be separated, unique, holy, and sanctified as that which rises up out of a person's heart to the very nostrils of God. There is also a picture of fragrant ointment that was offered in the New Testament in John 12, 1 to 8. This time the ointment was given to Christ. It is good to give our to our fellow men, but what is more important is that we give it to God. In our churches, many of us are like Martha's. Heard about that the other week, okay? We and always busy. We're always we're involved in this program. We're doing this, we're doing that, we're doing we're just activities and programs galore. We're almost like we mark out exactly what we will give to God instead of pouring out to him a magnanimous amount, which might equal to a year's wages as Mary did. As the fragrance rose from the ointment, it showed a picture of her worshiping heart. This is what God is after. True worship is better than religious activity or welfare. Those things may be good, but worship is better. One has defined ministry as that which comes down to us from the Father through the Son and the power of the Spirit to one another in the form of spiritual gifts. Worship, on the other hand, is that which goes up from us by the Spirit's power through the Son to the Father. In other words, ministry is that which comes down from God to us, whereas worship is that which goes up from us to God. Many of us need to learn from Mary and how to sit at Jesus' feet and worship him. Here are some questions to ask yourself. Do I worship God? Is worship a priority for me? Do I faithfully and regularly attend church? Do we like the psalmist in Psalm 63 yearn for God? Do we so hunger for him that we hurry to the corporate assembly of true worshipers? Worship is so important because scripture speaks so much of it. The first commandment of the Ten Commandments tells us that worship is a priority. In Exodus 20, verses 3 to 5, God says, You shall have no other what? Gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in the heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water upon the, under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. Another picture of worship is found in the tabernacle in Exodus 25. It took a total of 243 verses or seven chapters for God to give Moses all the measurements, standards, and furnishings that were to be the part of the tabernacle. And he gave only 31 verses to talk about the creation of the universe. Isn't that interesting? Have you ever thought about that? There was nothing so fanciful about the tabernacle, but that what was inside what was important. The Ark of the Covenant was inside the Holy of the Holies. On top of the Ark was the mercy seat where the high priest sprinkled blood once a year on the Day of Atonement for the sins of the people. It was on the mercy seat that the Shekinah glory of God dwelt. Exodus 25, 22, God says to Moses, there I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. Psalm 95, verse 6, 
says in the first part of verse 7 says, Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God. And in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul exhorts us to worship in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Paul has been talking about the glorious gospel of Christ, his redemptive plan and his mercy for sinful men in the first 11 chapters of this book. Paul has given us so much heavy doctrine in those 11 chapters. Now he talks about application and practical living. Paul says in Romans 12, 1 and 2, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of what? Worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So God desires spiritual worship, which is acceptable to him. The word acceptable here speaks of sacrifice and worship. So what God wants from believers is acceptable, acceptable spiritual worship. This begins with the body as a living sacrifice. It is not just a physical body that God wants because this would not be the spiritual worship, but it is the whole of the person. God saved us so that we might give him acceptable worship. What a thought. As believers, 1 Peter 2.5 describes us this way, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a spiritual, for a, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Question. Does God live in a house made with hands? No, he does not. He does not live in a house made with someone's hands made of brick and mortar. God lives in a house made of the living stones of his people. As holy priests, we should offer up spiritual sacrifices. Acceptable and the spiritual worship is offered because of God's work in Christ. Worship is not simply something to add on to someone's life. True worship is a central part of a person's life. Those who worship God in an acceptable manner have eternal life, and those who do not worship God experience eternal death. Frankly, there are only two kinds of worship that can be offered. There's acceptable worship, and there's unacceptable worship. Most people in the world give unacceptable worship. There is unacceptable worship in the form of false gods. Some people think that because there are those who worship their own God simply because they do not know any better. Surely God would accept them if they are sincere in their worship, won't he? As much as it may hurt, friends, he will not. They may be as sincere as they want to be, but they are sincerely wrong. Their small g gods are unacceptable because they are gods, little gods. The true and living God is a jealous God and will not tolerate the worship of another. See that in Exodus 34, 14 and Isaiah 48, 11. This is what the world worshiped. Romans 1 in verse 21 tells us that when Paul says they were not thankful, he is basically saying that they would not give God the praise, adoration, thanks and homage he is due. They refused to worship God, so he gave them up. 
Because they refused to worship God, they made their own images in verse 23. So when men reject God, they will worship false gods or gods that they have created. Their false gods can fall into categories of one's earthly or material gods. And that is where we are as a nation. God has given us up. You want all of these things? There you are. Homosexuality, pornography, you name it. Abortion, you want it? There you have it. Because you are not worshiping the true and the living God. Job talks about this in Job 31, 24 to 40, 28. This talks about men who worship what they possess. Their gods can also fall into the category of worshiping the gods of the material world. Deuteronomy 4, 14 through 19 talks about how people worship heavenly or supernatural small g gods. God should never be worshiped, should never be reduced to an image, never. If someone thinks of God as an old man with a beard sitting in a chair, that is bad. It's bad all over. Someone once said that it's not the hammer that starts idolatry, but it's in the mind. So when someone sees God in improper terms, his view of God will be wrong. We should never have a visual image of God because he is never to be reduced to an image. I remember our children had a book we would go through and it had a, a CD that went along with it. And they had these pictures of a grandfatherly picture of God figure. And the book was pretty much okay. So painstakingly, I went through this book and marked out all of the images of this grandfatherly God. And I remember my children would all often ask me, you know, well, why is that marked out on that page? And I would tell them, because we don't make an image of God. God is a spirit. And I think they got the picture. Isaiah gives a commentary on how God's people had become idolatrous in Isaiah 2, 6-10. They were even worshiping the sun from Ezekiel 8, 16. So the materialistic, agnostic, or atheist worship a God of his own invention. Even if it is the God, which many times is the God in the mirror, they make a God of themselves. They adorn themselves, and many have made idols of that very God. So what is your primary reason for coming to church? Are you trying to avoid peer pressure, or do you come for some sort of program or entertainment? Read Luke 10, 38-42. Look at the contrast between Mary and Martha. Which woman most resembles your devotion to Christ? Meditate on Psalm 95. Why should we worship God? So there are various uh, views of unacceptable worship that we've uh, looked at. Just one other, if you go to 2 Samuel 6, 1 and 9, we see Uzzah, who was a member of a group known as the Kohites. They were responsible for transporting the Ark of the Covenant. The Kohites were taught from the time they were small to know nothing but how to carry the Ark as a given in Numbers 4, 15. The Ark was never to be touched. They had large rings on the sides through which the Kohites would slit and slide poles and lifted them to their shoulders. This was always how the ark was to be transported.
important, and Uzzah was well aware of it. As mentioned before, he had been trained from childhood to do that way, but instead, he took the chance of putting it on a cart. This was a mistake, big mistake. The ark was not to be handled in any way, regardless of the intention. So in verses 6 to 7 of 2 Samuel 6, it says, But when they came to the threshing floor of Nakan, Uzzah reached out toward the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen nearly upset it. And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah. And God struck him down there for his irreverence. And he died there by the ark of God. The incredible thing is that Uzzah never knew better. He had been trained on what to do as a child, yet he thought he could intrude into God's commandments. He was wrong. In the New Testament, the Pharisees tried to worship God with their own means of religion. In other words, their forms of worship was not according to God's commandments or standards, but according to their own inventions. In Matthew 15, 1 through 9, the Pharisees come to Jesus and tells him that he was violating the traditions of the elders. Can you imagine coming to Jesus and telling him that he wasn't worshiping very God according to their traditions? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. The Pharisees, in essence, told Jesus that he was not worshiping God according to their tradition. But Jesus told them that they were not worshiping according to God's commands. They had invented their own system. Jesus shows them in verses 4 to 6 and verses 7 to 9. With, he says, you hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching us doctrines, the precepts of men. And let's look at what true worship in John 4, verses 20 through 24. John 4, 20 through 24. And here Jesus is speaking to the woman at the well. He says, Our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The word worship appears at least eight times in this passage. So what was one of the purposes God created us for? Not a trick question. Worship. Worship. God created us for worship. The reason is given at the end of verse 23, which says, for such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. In other words, who are we to worship? God, the Father, none other than the Father. The verses before tell how Jesus had told her about her sin, about having 
had five husbands, and she more than likely was convicted of her sin, and she wanted remedy for this sin problem, but she didn't know exactly where to go and thought that worship was done at a particular place and at a particular time. This is where Jesus steps in and tells her in verse 21 that it's not so much about a place geographically as much as it is about a person. In other words, listen, friends, he was letting her know that Jerusalem would one day be destroyed in 70 AD, and there would be no place to go to worship but in her heart. There would always be a person to worship. What Jesus was really saying is that God must be worshiped as a spirit and in truth. He is everywhere and cannot be limited and confined to a place such as Mount Gerizim or Jerusalem. So it comes down to the fact, not so much where we worship or when we worship, but more than that is it's the fact that our worship must be done in spirit and in truth. The one we are to worship is the spirit and the father. The spirit speaks of his essential nature and the father speaks of his essential relationship. Worship is the essence of what it means to call oneself a believer or a Christian. We must worship the God who is spirit and worship the God of the Bible. This is the God we are to worship. When Jesus speaks of worship of the Father here, he is not referring to our relationship to him as his children, but he is talking about the Trinity where God is seen as the Father of Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus is talking about the sameness of essence just as a son is with his Father. Jesus is the Son, and God is the Father, but they are the same in essence. What does the hymn, Holy, 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 say? God in three, blessed, blessed Trinity. The fact of the matter is that God can never really be worshipped unless he is worshipped as the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when Jesus calls God Father, it's not our Father that he is talking about, but he is talking about his Father and speaking of his deity and equality with God. So friends, let me say that this is lovingly as I can. If someone says that Jesus is not God, they do not have true worship, and they don't worship the true and living God. That is why the first question I ask the people who come knocking on my door and call themselves Jehovah's Witnesses. I would, my very first question to them is, do you believe that Jesus is God? And when they tell me, they go off on their tangent and go off and tell me these other things, I already know that they are not worshiping the true and the living God. It's a cult. They do not worship God. And I think that they've marked our house now because they don't come by anymore. <laughs> In verse 21, where Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Jesus was not saying that the place of worship or the symbols were not important. What he was saying is that a time would come when those buildings would be destroyed and the sacrifices and the priests would no longer be needed. 
because he would be the final and perfect sacrifice. We don't so much need a building or a temple to worship, and that is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? That means that you can worship him wherever you go, just like we had a time of worship at an event called the Scriptorium yesterday in Conway, Arkansas. You may say, well, Christopher, what does that mean? Does that mean that I don't have to go to church because we can worship anywhere at any time? Absolutely not. I'm not saying that. Remember we talked about on last Lord's Day, we talked about the resurrection and that was the first day of the week, the day that we commemorate the Lord's Day, the day we come to worship. We are called to worship together and to build one another up. The writer to Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling as the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So in John 4, 22 to 24, Jesus says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews, but an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is of spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. In verse 22, Jesus told the Samaritan woman that she worshiped what she did not know. In other words, the Samaritans were worshiping, but they did not know exactly what they were worshiping. The, the Samaritans only believed, get this, they only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Can you imagine just having those five books? That's it, the law. No Isaiah. No Jeremiah. Well, so they, so to say the least, they knew some things about God, but they were very limited in their knowledge and did not have full revelation of salvation given in the scriptures. But they were very excited, enthusiastic. You know, they did all of these rituals. They did all these sacrifices. The only problem was that they did not have all the truth. They had the spirit but no truth. Now, the Jews, on the other hand, were the opposite of the Samaritans. They actually had all 39 books of the Old Testament. They had the entire revelation of the teaching of salvation. So they no doubt had the truth, but they were lacking in spirit. Matthew 6, 1-8 talks about how they were hypocrites and cold-hearted. So Jerusalem had the truth, but they were lacking in spirit. And the Samaritans had the spirit, but they were lacking in truth. Jesus is saying that both the spirit and the truth must be present to have true worship. That's why Jesus says in verse 23, but an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. Do you get bored at worship? It may be a commentary on your heart and not so much on the preacher. I pray that I'm not born. Uh, the children know in our house we don't use the word bored because 
bored can lead to a boom boom. <laughs> because we have too many things that you can do to help to occupy your minds or we can help you with that, with those things. And let me just say this as an aside. Many people say, and I think the one of the issues that happens with worship is, you know, what in, in regards to how people regard the holiness of God. And I, I hear this often, and many people say and that God spoke to them or, you know, audibly they heard from God. And I'm not here to dispute what you may say, but whenever someone in the Bible heard from God, there was a great sense of awe and reverence. Abraham in Genesis 18, 27, when Abraham entered into God's presence and confessed that he was nothing, he says, I'm dust and ashes. That's how he saw himself before God. Job, who was a righteous man in Job 1, 8, he came to the end of his amazing pilgrimage. He saw God as the sovereign, holy God of the universe and said, wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. How many of you have ever heard the name Manoah? You know who Manoah is? How many of you have heard of Samson? That was Samson's father. His name was Manoah. And Manoah, when, when they were about to find out when Samson was going to be born, Manoah saw an angel of the Lord and he said to his wife, we will surely die because we have seen God. That's the kind of view that they had of the holy and living God. It was a a view of reverence and awe. When Habakkuk, when Habakkuk heard the voice of the Lord, this is what his reaction was. When I heard my belly tremble, my lips quivered at his voice, at the voice. Rottenness entered into my bones, and I trembled in myself. So when a true worshiper comes into the presence of God, there's a sense of fear and awe. The disciples, after Jesus after they saw Jesus steal the wind and the sea, it says, and they feared exceedingly and said one to another, what manner of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? You see, they realized that having God in their boat was far worse than the storm outside of their boat, as someone has said, because they had to face the holiness of God. And this is a good way to just think about worship. And someone has put it this way in a spiritual inventory. Just listen. When you prepare your hearts for worship, Hebrews 10.22, you may want to turn there, is a good way every Lord's Day to think about preparing your, your heart for worship. Hebrews 10 and verse 22 and it says, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So he says the call is, someone has very well put this, and I'm just going to take uh, as a checklist here. Let us draw near. This is a call to worship. And who are we to draw near to? 
We do draw near to God. And you may say, well, I want to do that. This is how you do it. You do it with a, a sincerity, with a true heart. Are you really sincere? Is your heart fixed and undivided? Are you worshiping with your whole heart? Fidelity and full assurance of faith. See, the Hebrews who this letter was written to, they were still trying to hold on to all the old ways, all the symbols, all the ceremonies, all the sacrifices. So you are to worship. We are to worship with sincerity, but also with truth as revealed in the New Testament. Full assurance of faith. That is saving truth. You're not to hang on to any of your own worthiness or any of your own self-righteousness, any of your own rituals, you're to be fully assured that you can come to God simply and only through faith. Humility, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. We must come to God with the knowledge that we are unworthy to be in his presence because our hearts are filled with an evil conscience. We must realize that the only reason we can come to God is because we've been sprinkled by the blood of Jesus Christ, which was shed for us on the cross to take care of our sin and cleanse our hearts. So as we worship, there's a sense of humility and unworthiness, knowing that we have no business being in the presence of God, except the fact that the Lord has sprinkled us clean from our sin. And lastly, the purity in our bodies washed with pure water. This is not saying that we have to have a full cleansing all over again, but we should daily come to deal with our sins through confession. Every time you prepare your hearts for worship, you should be asking yourself these questions. Am I sincere? Is my heart fixed? Is my whole heart devoted to God? Am I focusing on him? Am I seeing him in the word through discovery and meditation? And so, dare say, if you take a few moments each Lord's Day and prepare, you will truly have your hearts prepared to worship the true and living God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this study in your word on worship. May you teach us how we are to be broken over our sin, to be humble, to look at your holiness and your reverence, your awe, that we may, we may be awestruck as we come before you. And may you teach us to worship you truly in spirit and in truth. Father, may you wash over us afresh and anew, even this day, and help us to take inventory and examination. And as we come before you, that we will grasp the immensity of worshiping you, our great and awesome and mighty God. It's in your name that we pray, Jesus. Amen.